According to my parents, I told them, I got hurt, but don't worry, like, I'll talk to you tomorrow, and I'll be okay. That really wasn't the case, but that's what I told my parents. Welcome to Lifespan. I'm your host, Jackie Wolf. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about healthcare. Every story is deeply personal, and each story teaches us something about the American healthcare system. Heather Salazar was a graduate student in the history department at Ohio University. She was deeply invested in the demanding program. One cold winter afternoon, she took a break from her studies to do something mundane that we all do, cook. Well, it was February 15th, 2015. It was just a couple days before Fat Tuesday or Fashnacht Day, which in Pennsylvania Dutch is the beginning of Lent and Mardi Gras, and it's a big celebration. I'm originally from Philadelphia. My family is half from Philadelphia and half from the Pennsylvania Dutch region of PA. I grew up with my grandparents making donuts. It was something my grandmother and I always look forward to doing. And we grew up in the kitchen. My grandmother was a cook and a baker. My mom always cooked. And so I was very familiar with the kitchen. And Heather wanted to share her donut making tradition with the history department. And so it was a cold, wintry day. There was snow on the ground. And just, you know, rocking out to music while I was cooking and got the four quarts of oil in the big pot because we never used a deep fryer. We just used a big pot of oil. Some people use a deep fryer, but my grandmother never used a deep fryer. She always used a big pot on the stove and would hand dip them. You put a pot of oil on the stove and off you cook. That's what I did, just like every other year. And something went horribly wrong. At one point, I was getting ready to dip the donuts in, and I started to see the oil start smoking. I was like, that's weird. That's not right. So I turned the fan on higher and turned the burner down even more than what it already was. And it still was smoking. And I was like, okay, let me just let it cool off. The next thing I know, I looked, and it was in flames. There was flames coming out of the pot. And I was like, oh, my God what is going on, like, okay, turn the fan up higher. I opened the windows. I was not even 10 feet from the back door. And I was like, okay, I guess I need to get it out. And this part is very foggy to me. I don't really remember exactly what happened. And and no one can really put the pieces together because nobody was there. But I think my mindset was to get it outside That didn't happen because when I came to, I was laying on my kitchen floor and I looked down and remembering seeing my fleece pants not really attached to my legs anymore. Heather didn't realize it at the time, but the fleece pants she'd been wearing had literally melted. Her legs were very badly burned. And so I remember like trying to army crawl to get out of the apartment. And I don't know how I had the wherewithal, but I reached for my cell phone, which was on the counter, and I called 911. 
So it sounds like there was an explosion. Possibly. The the only thing that I can think of is that the stove that I was cooking on is an old-style coil electric stove. I grew up cooking on gas, and I don't know if it just got too hot, and then even though I turned the burner off, it still continued to heat, and that's what erupted it into flames. To this day, I don't know. By now, the fire department is on its way. Yes. That was very interesting because... Growing up outside of Philadelphia, we have around-the-clock fire ambulance and everything. And so I remember the 911 dispatcher telling me they have to go get the trucks. They'll be there as soon as possible. And I did not understand what they meant because growing up, the stations are manned 24-7. But Athens, Ohio, where Ohio University is located, is in a rural area. If you live outside the city limits, you're in a volunteer fire department district. My house, like Heather's house, is just outside the city limits. When I bought my house, I had never thought to ask what that meant in terms of city services. Like Heather, I'm a city girl. You just assume city services will be there when you need them. But in a rural area, it can be 45 minutes or more before the volunteer team can be pulled together and the truck arrives to put out the fire. I remember yelling at them, what do you mean? You have to get the trucks. Get them here now. And when they came, they were very friendly. The one woman was like, we're here. We got you. Like, you're okay. We're going to get you the help you need. Don't worry about your apartment. We'll take care of everything. Do you remember being in pain? No. I remember being cold, being very cold. And I remember thinking, there's a lot of snow on the ground but I don't remember being in pain. So Heather arrived by ambulance at the local hospital emergency room. They began to give me some sort of pain medication. They were able to find my vein, put an IV in me. And the one nurse asked me, you know, do you have somebody we can call? This is more serious. We can't really help you here. And I flipped. I remember yelling at the nurse What do you mean you can't help me? I'm in an ER. But few hospitals have burn units, and Heather still didn't realize how seriously hurt she was. The ER team had to send her to another hospital almost 90 miles away. Luckily, Heather had her cell phone with her, and she told the ER nurse to call Amanda, the woman who was her office mate. I was sitting at home watching TV with my husband. Out of the blue, I got a call from my caller ID said it was from her, from her cell phone. It was an emergency room nurse saying Heather had experienced some burns. She needed somebody to come to the hospital. It happened so quickly that I just, I thought that she needed like a ride home from the hospital or something like that. She didn't really tell me how serious it was. There was no inclination in her voice that it was a serious injury. And immediately they started calling me back. You have to come quickly. You need to come to the back and see her. She's asking for you. And when I turned the corner, she was laying on a gurney completely wrapped up in blankets from head to toe. The only thing I could see was her face. She was in shock. You know, she was shaking. She couldn't stop crying. She kept apologizing. She really just didn't understand what was happening. Amanda spent less than a minute with Heather before the helicopter whisked her away. I remember looking down and being wrapped in what looked like tinfoil and them saying, okay, you know, we have to fly you up to Columbus to get you treated. And I refused to leave until I saw Amanda. And she came, and 
I still remember the look in her eyes. She had tears in her eyes. And she looked at me and said, you're going to be okay. I will see you in Columbus. So Heather was medevac to Columbus, the nearest big city. I remember them putting on a headset with a microphone and them asking me random questions. And looking back on it, I'm guessing they were trying to just keep me lucid. There was a female, and then the pilot was a male. And the pilot said, hey, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm a Ph.D. in history, and I'm studying the U.S. military. And he goes, oh, I just retired. I I flew Blackhawks for 20 years or something like that. And I remember taking a deep breath and going, then you know how to fly this thing. Amanda still knew nothing about the extent of Heather's injuries. The nurse at the front desk had actually told me that she had burned her leg so bad that she probably lost the use of that limb. The nurse suggested that Amanda head to Columbus so that she would be there when Heather woke up. So my husband and I went back to our house, grabbed like an overnight bag, and we started heading up to Columbus. And it was on that drive to Columbus that I started thinking about who in our family I need to call. Do I need to contact her professors to let them know? Does the history department need to know because she's a TA? So I started going through the list at that point of who I needed to contact. I was trying to call the department chair because usually the department has contact information and we were able to get her parents' phone number through that venue. Heather's parents got a phone call out of the blue from Amanda, a woman they had never met. I received a phone call from Amanda And when she told me what happened, I just kind of turned into a little bit of a stone person. I had to tell Lorna, you know, we had to just regroup. I told Amanda we will be there. We'll be there as soon as we can. You kind of just go into an automatic mode as to what you know you have to do for your daughter. We shoved a few things in a bag and we're out the door. Driving to a place that we had never been before in weather that was not very fun but our focus was just getting to Columbus as soon as we possibly could to see our girl. Amanda didn't want to tell us how bad it was because she knew we'd freak on the trip in. We were told that she had a little accident. That was one of the other ways of knowing to kind of keep us more level-headed going out there than telling us the severity of the situation. If they would have told us how bad it was, I probably would have had about 50 speeding tickets. But, you know, I kind of drove aggressively sensible. (laughs) Aggressively sensible. I just wanted to get to Heather. We landed, I guess, on a helipad somewhere on the rooftop of the hospital. And next thing I know, I was under bright lights in the ER. When physicians assess the seriousness of a burn, they study three things. They look at what caused the burn, they look at what percentage of your body was burned, and they look at the depth of the burn. Although the success of burn treatment took a leap in the early 1970s, severe burns are still one of the most serious traumas doctors treat. Our intact skin helps regulate body temperature, it regulates moisture, it protects us from infection, it's our appearance to the world. Heather had been burned over 20% of her body. I did have burns on my hands, some splatter marks on my face. It was splotchy and stuff that they think I probably covered my face to protect it, and it hit my hands instead. But the majority of the burns were on my legs. On my right upper leg, basically my thigh through my hip, were third and fourth degree burns. So in certain locations, they could see my muscle. 
Third and fourth degree burns are the most serious and almost always require skin grafts. Third degree burns affect all layers of the skin. Fourth degree burns have reached the fascia, muscle, and bone. When Amanda and her husband arrived at the hospital in Columbus, Heather was still being held in the emergency room until a bed opened up in the burn unit. In the ER, it was clear that the medication had started taking effect. Because I looked at her with, like, big open arms and a big smile. She was apologizing profusely for interrupting my night. I'm so sorry for ruining your night. She was very out of it. You could tell she was, was highly medicated. We were there for probably two or three hours. They still didn't know the full extent of her wounds. And I think it was about 3 a.m. that she was finally able to go into the burn unit and have them undress her wounds and look at them and determine that she's going to need surgery. They knew I needed surgery, probably multiple surgeries, to perform skin grafts. And because I was healthy, they realized that they could use my own skin as donor sites. Amanda and her husband, Bobby, they stayed with me until my parents got there. I remember my first thought when I did see her, though, because we couldn't see the full extent of her burns. But I remember seeing her face and thinking, thank God your face is okay. I don't know. It was reassuring to me thinking, okay, her face is okay. She's going to be okay. The first time I remember seeing my parents was just before surgery. And I remember saying or thinking, you know, I said I love them. I told them to tell my brother and sister, an unborn niece, and my brother-in-law, I loved them. And I remember being wheeled down the hall thinking, I don't know if I'm going to see them again. Doctors took healthy skin from the back of Heather's right leg for the skin grafts. They explained later that because the front of her right leg was already damaged, the back of her leg was their first choice for a donor site. They didn't want her to have two different healing sites. Because my burns were so deep, they had to go quite deep into the donor site. And I had multiple surgeries. They all came from the same donor site. I was wrapped in a lot of gauze. My hands were all wrapped to cover the burn sites, as well as it's almost like a paste that you put on almost like a plastic lining. But I also, because I couldn't walk, I had a catheter, I also had compression boots, in a sense, on my lower legs and my feet. And so they would be compressing So you wouldn't swell. Um, So I wouldn't swell. The burns on Heather's right thigh were so severe that fluids could not be carried to that portion of her body. So the compression contraption forced fluids and blood to go where it was supposed to go. That's why burn treatments get so complicated. Skin performs many functions. It's not only the burn that doctors and nurses are treating. I was automatically put on a very high-protein diet, which included a lot of hard-boiled eggs. And that was because the amino acids in the protein really help regenerate skin growth. So not only are they having to worry about moisture loss and and blood flow, they're constantly having to debride the wound. They have to clean the wound constantly. I would go to the debriding room usually once a day. Sometimes in the early days, it was twice. I was put on a metal table, and that's also how they would kind of shower me. And they weren't just spraying Heather with water. They were keeping her on an extremely high dose of pain medication. And it got to be kind of a joke that 
they would bring me in this lollipop. It was pain medication, but I don't know, it made me happy. I was like, oh, you're giving me a lollipop. Okay, I'll eat the lollipop. One of the many things that the medical community learned from the revolution in burn treatment that began in the early 1970s was the importance of controlling pain. At least one burn patient has described debridement on insufficient pain meds as being boiled alive in oil. My first hospital stay was just shy or just over a month before I was released. The decision had to be made whether I was going to stay in Ohio or go back to Philadelphia, which was not feasible to me. I was not allowed to drive. I was on tons of pain medication. The problem was that no one in Athens, Ohio, specialized in burn treatment, so Heather would have been required to make daily 160-mile round trips to Columbus after her discharge from the hospital. And so there was one of three options that we could do. The first one was to figure out what burn unit and facility back in Philadelphia could take me and figure out a way to get me there because I would be close to family. Second option would be to put me in some sort of rehab facility outside of Columbus or near Columbus. The third option was either for my mom to basically quit her job and take care of me full time and move out here or have somebody here learn how to take care of me. And that's where my friend Amanda comes in. She stepped up and said, you're not going anywhere. You're going to finish this program. We're going to make it that you finish this program, and I will learn how to take care of you. Amanda immediately stepped up. She learned more about burn treatment than most physicians know. I learned a lot more about how the body works and effect burns take on a body. So I went up three different times to learn how to clean her wounds and how to wrap up her legs properly. It was a lot more than just cleaning out a wound. Burns, it moves the fluid around in your legs, so we had to make sure that her her feet and her legs were all wrapped up so they wouldn't expand. We had to make sure that everything was cleaned properly and then put an ointment on to make sure that the new skin growing didn't stick to the bandages. When you went up for the training up to, up to Columbus, was it on Heather's body? It was. The first time was kind of just to see how bad her wounds were and for them to kind of tell me all the important aspects of cleaning them and what I needed to look out for and what I needed to keep my eye on. The second and third time, they allowed me to actually do the cleaning myself and wrap up her legs. So they kind of supervise me and tell me what I'm doing right, what I need to improve on. And so after the third time, they said that I was good and that was it. How many times a day did you need it to do this? So it was just once a day, but it had to be consistent. So I couldn't go in the morning one day and then the evening the next day. So it was usually between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the evening that I go, that I would go every single day. Right at the end of May is when she felt comfortable enough to kind of wrap up her legs herself. I always felt really bad taking the bandages off because there's just not enough medication to take all that pain away. So I had to be very slow. She would tell me when to stop and when she was okay. You could just see how excruciating it was every day to go through that. From the first night, I could tell that she was going to have some variety of post-traumatic stress disorder. Even in the first night, she was waking up with nightmares and flashbacks and screaming and that sort of thing. I knew she was going to recover. I knew she was going to be back in the program. I never had a single doubt in her for that. But I knew that this was going to add to her life in some way, that she was going to be different because of the experience she had. 
Now, you had no nursing experience before this. No. But when it became clear that Heather needed this kind of care, it wasn't even a difficult decision for you. Not even close. Amanda's role in this story was extraordinary. But not only Amanda offered Heather support. After the decision was made to let Heather go back to Athens, the entire history department rallied around her. Normally, a graduate student would disappear after an accident like this. She'd simply drop out of school. But this department has a long history of rallying when a colleague is facing a crisis. I think every day we had a group of students go up to visit her, either to take her flowers from the department. Uh, One day we had a couple of the female students go up to paint her toenails and paint her fingernails just to make her feel, you know, a little bit better. Every night somebody slept on her couch. If she got scared or if she woke up with nightmares or anything, somebody was there to kind of calm her down and remind her where she was at and what had happened. Students would sign up what meals that they would bring her. Professors came over and brought her cooked meals. Her advisor, Dr. Trauschweiser, came and cooked her meals just to try to raise her spirits a little bit. It made me fall in love with my department and my school even more. Faculty members were all in agreement. They were going to make sure that Heather completed the Ph.D. program. History professors Stephen Miner and Catherine Jellison remember helping Heather after she returned from her long hospital stay. The departmental community was continually supportive. I remember when she first reappeared on campus, it was during one of our annual conferences, and she was driven there, and she was still in in fairly bad shape. But uh, everybody gave her a very warm welcome. I remember that, too. She was sitting up at the front of the room in in her wheelchair, and everyone just, you know, ran up and greeted her and hugged her. She had been making donuts for the department when, when this happened. The donuts were being made because she was grateful for something that, that the department had done for her, so she was going to pay them back with her family tradition. Mm-hmm. And then the department ended up just paying it back a thousandfold. Heather's academic advisor, Ingo Trauschweiser, was clearly concerned about her long-term success, but he also had immediate concerns. This happened in the second semester of her first year, as I recall, when you were kind of on the heaviest course load, which made this, well, there is no good time for anything like that. But if it happened at a later point, you know, it wouldn't affect your courses as much. So we had to work out a way that once she got back, uh, she would not fall too far behind. Was there anything we could do to help her recover? And uh, I think one of the issues was uh, she wanted to be back in Athens. And so we all really had to, in in a sense, get together and, and bring our various skills and time to the table, right? So that includes Amanda and her ability to help on the medical support side. And it included a lot of us uh, who, who donated time and, and food and kind of tried to keep her connected to the, to the program. Faculty members came in and maybe cooked meals uh, or, and, and had these conversations, which, you know, we, she and I have talked about this. She doesn't remember any of the conversations and vaguely remembers, you know, people came in and cooked for her and talked to her. But I think there's a kind of a a connectivity anyway that helped her find the motivation to basically start over in the second year, right? Because this was about a half-year recovery, at least, in terms of both physical and sort of mental acuity. And, and, you know, the medication kind of slowed her down a lot well into the second year. The history department faculty even assured that Heather could keep her teaching assistantship. Even though she obviously could not entirely function as a, as, as a teaching assistant. Now, she'd actually been my TA the first semester in uh, one of the big introductory surveys in world history and, and had done remarkably well. Uh, so we, we, we knew we were sort of investing on that side and somebody who'd already proven their value as a teaching assistant. And 
the graduate director, you know, kind of figured out how to how to do that, which meant that other TAs kind of took an extra work uh, a little bit. It goes a little bit into the following fall when she was slowly coming back to, to full strength. The other item, of course, is the lingering effects of this. She is suffering from some of the same issues that, that we associate with war veterans. So, for example, in the middle of a comprehensive exam, years later, uh, we had to stop and take a break because a fire engine went by outside the, the building. To her, that is just about the same as an Iraq veteran seeing this, this piece of trash sitting by the roadside and wondering if there's an IED. By the middle to end of March, part of my skin grafts had failed. But they wanted to see, because some of it was starting to heal, they thought, okay, well, maybe the grafts at the deepest level would start to heal and it would close from the inside out. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So in early April, I went in for another round of surgeries. Heather went back to the hospital for another two weeks for her next round of skin grafts from the same donor's site on the back of her right leg. And it was amazing after that because up until that point, I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't really walk because I was in so much pain. The nerves had been severed. So I had no pain at the actual burn location, but the nerve endings would fire and were very sensitive and were exposed. And can nerves grow back? They can, but in my case, they did not. I have no feeling where my grafts are on my right leg. For my case, as challenging as it has been to learn kind of a lifestyle where I have to be conscious of my leg because I don't have feeling, there's no sweat glands or cells to regulate temperature. Showers, for instance, hot water. I would always go in with my right leg first. I can't now. I always go in with my left, or I will stick both of my arms in to regulate the shower temperature. So sitting on my couch with my laptop, I can't have that directly on my leg anymore. Between the warmth of the laptop and also the weight, you don't know what can do. So I have a laptop tray that my friends got me. Cold is a big thing that is still challenging to regulate in the winter. It can get cold here. Well, at my graft location, my skin can turn almost like opaque white. And that is because it can't regulate the temperature. And so I have to make a conscious effort, you know, if I'm going to be outside for long periods of time to put on, you know, a pair of biking shorts or a pair of tights to keep as much warmth as possible. So you don't get frostbite. Right. And essentially reburn. Correct. The burn. Talk a little bit about physical therapy, because once the wound has healed, burned skin, it's never normal skin ever again. Mm -hmm. So what was physical therapy like for you? Physical therapy was intense. I was in physical therapy for almost two solid years. I had to relearn how to walk again because being immobile, my muscles atrophied and I had to walk with a walker or crutches and almost till the end, beginning of the fall semester of 2015. But and this is about seven months after the this burn. This is about seven months. Part of my graft does go across my groin area. And so that all had to be restretched. And the muscles had to learn that, okay, they can 
you can function, you know. I had to learn to stretch again. I had to learn how to sit in a chair in a way that would not cause the graphs to seize and, like, get super tight. So I would have to sit there and during class or whatever massage my graphs just so that way when I would get up, I wouldn't, like, stumble. You're basically relearning your body. Yes. Reaccustoming yourself to to the new reality of your body. Yep. And so I did that for, like I said, almost two years. I was lucky. I had a phenomenal physical therapist. Let me ask you about health insurance. I had student health insurance. I'm still paying medical bills off three and a half years later. It was a struggle. I had come here with enough savings to last me through five summers for research and everything. And my entire life savings was wiped out in a blink of an eye because I had to pay medical bills. For an example, my helicopter ride was over $30,000. And that wasn't covered by insurance? It was covered except for several thousand. In the large scheme of things, it's not that bad, but it's a lot. And when you have several thousand here and there over endless months and even years of rehabilitation, that's a lot of money. Yes. Amanda reflected on what it means to take daily care of a person as gravely injured as Heather was. I don't think people understand like how the every day of it affects you. On day 40, you start realizing every single day this is what I'm doing. And that starts to affect everything else because you kind of know that every single day at some point you have to do this. I would do it again in a heartbeat. There was really nothing to it compared to what she had to go through. It takes a toll on the caretaker too. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And not just me. You know, my husband, he had to realize that every single day, three hours, four hours of my time was going to be kind of eaten up because of this. And so obviously he was very understanding. He adores Heather just as much as I do. So, you know, we worked it out. But, you know, I had to rearrange my day on when I was going to get my work done and when I was going to get my grading done and when I was going to be able to spend time with my husband. It does affect every single day. But once you get a good schedule, you know, it's, it's, it's doable. I can't even explain how understanding the professors were and the rest of the students were. It it was just like one big family that came together. Professors that never even had her in class, professors that never had her as a TA, came over to her house to bring food by and to ask how she was doing. For me, that, that was just a miracle. I couldn't have done what I did without the rest of the people. So the fact that other students were willing to sacrifice their time as master students in the program and as PhD students in the program, they're willing to give up three hours or the entire night to sleep on her couch just to make sure that she felt better. That was, it was great. Note that Amanda doesn't credit herself, yet Heather's recovery in rural Athens, Ohio, would have been impossible without Amanda. She provided Heather with nursing care for hours each day for months on end. Heather's parents know that. They now view Amanda as another daughter. If it hadn't been for Amanda, I would have left my job to stay with Heather because she needed, she needed somebody. Amanda filled that role. Yeah, above and, an be, above yeah. and beyond. Yeah, man, it was incredible. It is incredible. My was is incredible. Seeing Burns is not the prettiest thing around. She went in there like a trooper. She just dove right in. There's no way that I could be where I am today as an ABD PhD candidate had the department not been able to help me. ABD, all but dissertation. All but dissertation. 
clearly it takes a village. You know, I can use all kinds of cliches here. <laughs> you know, you talked about how much help you had. You talked about family rallying. You talk about friends rallying. You talk about virtual strangers. I mean, you were a new student in the history department. So these people, you know, had not known you for very long. And, you know, you're talking about a team of people. You had a team behind you. I did. I'm not sure how to wrap up a story like this, but it seems like the lesson that you come away with is if you have a community, if you have resources, as horrific as something like this is to get through, you you have people behind you to help you get through it. I still have triggers. Sirens going through campus or going along the highway make me shudder. And that community has still, you know, they know me. They know that if I might be having a rough day or they can tell if I'm extra quiet, they start making jokes to get my mind off off of it. Those people that have been my village and my community of support look at me and say, you survived. And each one of them had a role in making me survive. In the United States, we value privacy. We value independence. Yet in the aftermath of Heather's accident, her apartment became a quasi-public space because she needed so much help from so many. People were coming in and out to bring food, to spend the night, to dress her wounds. For months. It shouldn't take a catastrophe for us to recognize how dependent we actually are on each other. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-executive producer and sound engineer. Audio assistance from Hurley Wintz. I'm your host and co-executive producer, Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University. Join us for our next episode of Lifespan on organ donation. Mm-hmm.